Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Max Reed. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, May 28th. First of all, I just want to welcome Max Reed, who is joining us for a second episode this month. Max is an editor and a writer at New York Magazine, where he writes the column Life in Pixels. Max, so great to have you with us again. Thanks so much for having me, April. It's summertime, which for many means going on some kind of vacation or jumping into the nearest body of water as soon as possible. And in honor of getting away from it all, we're doing a special episode this week on a particular flavor of escapism popular amongst some of the most elite and powerful in Silicon Valley, prepping for doomsday. First, we're joined by Patri Friedman, the founder and board chairman of the Seasteading Institute. Patri has spoken widely and worked on efforts to build communities on ships in international waters where all aboard will be free from government control and free to form their own libertarian societies. Friedman also had a former career as a competitive poker player and used to work at Google as an engineer. Then we're talking to Robert Vecino, head of Vivos, a company that builds high-end shelters to help people survive natural disasters and other potential catastrophes. He's got bunkers in South Dakota, Indiana, and Europe, where he offers buyers dwellings in case of, as Vecino lists on his website, a giant tsunami, bio-war, a killer comet, or anarchy. And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. The future is a prime concern in the tech industry. Those who are able to dream up and concoct new inventions that revolutionize how we live are massively rewarded. Successful innovators become billionaires. So it's not totally surprising that many of these tech luminaries are prone to thinking even further into the future, imagining utopias like Waterworld-inspired libertarian colonies in the middle of the ocean, and dystopias, perhaps resulting from fear that the technologies that made many of those in the industry tremendously wealthy, like artificial intelligence, will replace millions of jobs and lead to either a robot or a human uprising. Those who have bought into some form of prepper survivalism include Peter Thiel, who has a 470-acre apocalypse retreat in New Zealand, where Sam Altman, the former president of the influential accelerator Y Combinator, is also invited to stay if a nightmare scenario unfolds. CEO and co-founder of Reddit, Steve Huffman, is stocked up on food and ammo in case of a societal collapse. And others, like Elon Musk, are building rocket ships with plans to colonize Mars. And as mentioned, there are those who are designing small cities in the middle of the ocean. Joining us to talk about this is Patri Friedman, founder of the Seasteading Institute, which he started in 2008 with seed funding from PayPal co-founder Peter Thiel. Patri, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So maybe we can actually start with some definitions, because seasteading might not be a word that everybody is familiar with. What, what is it exactly? Seasteading is the idea of homesteading the high seas, of people going out and building villages, towns, and even cities on the ocean. Can you describe so that we can sort of picture in our mind's eye what a seastead might look like? Definitely. And there's different people have different designs for seasteads, and they're going to look different at different scales. So initially, it might be a a cruise ship that's been repurposed to have permanent residents. It might be floating platforms, much like floating homes look today, that with participation of a country are anchored in a lagoon uh, or inside a reef where the waters are calm. Eventually, out in the deep ocean, they'll look like oil rigs, 
So tall pillars that keep the flotation below the waves and a platform above the waves. And then we think eventually the biggest cities will have open ocean breakwaters. So a huge circular breakwater that makes an artificial lagoon and then uh, lower buildings inside that. And what's the attraction of having them on the sea exactly? Why not go out in the middle of the desert and build a city? There's a lot of different reasons for going to the ocean. Um, some people are interested in climate resilience, in aquaculture, and, and just making use of the two-thirds of the Earth's surface that we're not using. But the founding genesis of seasteading was the idea of going to the ocean for political freedom, that uh, every piece of land is claimed by a country, even the smallest rock in the middle of the ocean is claimed because it extends oil and gas rights out 200 miles. And so we looked to the ocean as a place to maybe go and start new societies. And so people have been trying to do this on and off over the years. There was just a, a recent go at it off the coast of Thailand, where a U.S. citizen and his Thai partner uh, have actually gone into hiding after being charged by the government of Thailand with violating the national sovereignty of the country for living in kind of a small cabin that was mounted to a mast. What happened there? What went wrong there? Did it not go as planned or is that not what seasteading is supposed to be? Yeah. So what what happened there, I think, is that from their point of view, they were just experimenting with a new engineering design. So this idea of what we call a spar platform, which is a single column that floats in the water and has a platform at the top that it holds above the waves. That's something that we'd been talking about since the earliest days of seasteading, almost 20 years ago before I got funding. And this group of people uh, who had some cryptocurrency money and some engineering experience got excited just to just go build it and then live on it, uh, anchored out 13 miles just outside of the territorial waters of Thailand and try it out. Now, they were seasteaders whose long-term ambition was to someday make an independent country on the ocean like all of us, but they didn't see this as being anything close to that. They were just trying out a design that might someday be used to live out in, in the deep ocean waters. And so while they asked uh, one part of the Thai government whether they minded, uh, they did not go and ask, for example, the Thai Royal Navy. They didn't get explicit written permission because they thought, hey, we're just testing a new kind of floating home, no big deal. But unfortunately, that area off the coast of Thailand, it's uh, on the other side of Thailand from the South China Sea, which is you know literally the most geopolitically intense and controversial place that you could build a platform and talk about sovereignty because of the things that are happening there with China. Um, and, you know, Thailand having an eye to the future and wanting to make sure that, you know, nobody started a trend of, of floating little things out there and then claiming territory, which Chad and Adi were not doing, but to guard against that in the future, they kind of went full force and sent out the Thai Royal Navy, charged them with treason. And now Chad and Adi are, are in hiding facing the death penalty or life in prison, which is kind of nuts for just trying out a new kind of floating home. If this is the kind of uh, response that seasetters are seeing from governments, you know, what, what does the, how do you get over that hump, so to speak? How do you convince, like, how is it not the case that any seastead that's going to be started isn't going to be immediately seized by whatever local territory's navy and, th you know, the seasetters themselves thrown in jail? Yeah, that's a great question. And so, and our strategy has been for the last five years, at the Seasteading Institute to work with countries. So our research on the law and engineering in our first five years determined that in order to do something small to start with, we needed to be protected from the waves uh, by being close to shore, and we needed to plug into the international legal system 
by getting the cooperation of a country. And so we had an agreement in French Polynesia where we worked for a couple of years trying to figure out if we could do a platform off of their coast. We're currently talking to other Pacific Island nations. And, you know, look, the thing about seasteading is we don't need to convince every country. We just need to find a few partners. And most countries are not so close-minded as Thailand. I guess I'm confused, or there's there's kind of a gap in my understanding here. Why start a new government? Why start new countries? Why not try to make the countries that people already live in better? That's a great question. And, uh, you know, as a programmer, I guess I look at it from the software perspective where um, you can only go so far in a system that uses, say, a given programming language and a given tech stack by patching it. You know, after enough decades, you really need a, a clean rewrite. You need to use the latest research, uh, the latest tools and drivers, and take everything you learned about the system and make it totally new. And, and we just know for sure from software that you can only patch a system so far. And, and I think that the same is true for, for law, that it, it's noble, the idea of reforming an entire country, but it turns out to be really hard in practice. And if you look at things like corruption, um, a lot of the world struggles with poverty due to corruption. And it's really hard when corruption is endemic in a country to root it out. And it's just it's just something that economists and development experts are, are realizing is that it's hard to change things in place. And philosophically, the idea of changing the legal system of a whole country to me is just wrong. Like you shouldn't inflict a new legal system on people who are used to the old one. But at the same time, there has to be some place where you can do new things and try new sets of laws that people can choose to go to. Otherwise, the whole system is just moribund and never changes. Can you give some examples of the kinds of laws that you think, you know, should be imported or the kinds of legal systems? Um, I mean, how are you judging best laws, good laws versus bad laws? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, when I when I started out 20 years ago, I was thinking that we could come up with better laws than ever existed. And I'm hoping that someday we'll do that. But it's become clear that the the immediate market opportunity is just taking uh, kind of the current best legal codes from various countries, which tend to be British common law based. That's one thing that the research shows is that common law based legal systems lead to higher economic growth. Uh, and so we work with a, a, an attorney named Tom Bell. And, and what he does is he looks at legal codes around the world and tries to find, you know, what's the corporate law of Delaware or what country has the best cryptocurrency or medical regulations right now and copy those and simplify them and bring them into a legal code uh, that can work together, even though they came from different countries. And and then maybe someday, if we prove ourselves doing this for 10 or 20 years, we can actually make some legal innovations. I mean, one thing that's sort of interesting to me, you know, Delaware, I grew up in New Jersey. Um, Delaware, obviously, it's a great place to incorporate a company. I'm not sure it's a great place to live. You know, if those are the laws that you're importing, what is going to make people want to live in a seastead? Well, the idea is that you import the best laws in each category. So we wouldn't copy all of Delaware's laws, just their corporate laws. Um, and in, in general, this question of what leads people to lead, live on a seastead is, is a really tough one. I think I originally started out thinking that seasteads would appeal to kind of the digital nomads of the world. Um, but now I think that there's not enough of those and it's kind of not the right market. And what, what's better is if we can bring seasteads close to existing countries bring honest courts and good legal systems and provide jobs for the people who live there doing the same things they're doing, but uh, under a better legal system. I mean, people who move to the United States make, you know, 10 to 20 times what they did at home with the same education and the same skills. 
And we want to scale that effect around the world so that people can have great jobs at home instead of having to leave their country. You know, you said earlier that this would be uh, an option for people who want to start over. Or this is a way of kind of starting over and not working with the existing framework. What about those people who can't afford to leave because they have family ties or because they just don't have the money or the the privilege to pack up and, and go somewhere else? Will those people just not be engaged in this kind of new utopia that you're imagining? Well, first off, I'd say there's there's nothing utopian about this. We just you okay. know, wanting to make legal systems that, that copy the best practices from around the world is, you know, just plain business sense. But I'd say that, you know, I, I think that your your criticism would have made more sense in the past when we were more focused on, let's build something in the middle of nowhere and maybe get all of the tech nomads or all of the Bitcoin people or libertarians to move there. But really, our focus has shifted. And I see international development as being, you know, really the the market right now. So, um, it's true that even if we are able to, to put seasteads uh, off the waters of a, a bunch of countries, there will be people who, you know, won't be willing, willing or able or able to afford to move 50 miles onto those seasteads. But I think they got a much better chance than if what they have to do is to, you know, make their way to Germany or to the United States. Um, the more we can bring these these regions of good government to more places in the world, uh, the more chance people have of getting there. And you know, I think of the United States in the 19th century with open borders. And, you know, sure, it was difficult. Not everybody could scrape up the money to, to get here. But the fact that it was open and that those people who could scrape up the money could go here and build better lives. I mean, that helped tens of millions of people. And so, you know, we may not be able to help everyone, but I think we can help a lot more people if we go and build seasteads in around many poor countries with the cooperation of those countries. So where is the movement now? You said it's kind of changed focus. Yeah, so we started out with uh, five years of research on law, engineering, business, and gathering a community. And we spent five years looking for countries to work with, and French Polynesia was the first one. Uh, things are kind of stalled there, and so now we're looking for other countries to work with. But we're still growing our community and looking for host countries, and we've got a bunch of entrepreneurs and investors who are kind of ready to spin up projects as we find countries that are that are willing to work with us. Something that I'm fascinated with about seasteading is why it uh, has such a strong base of support sort of in Silicon Valley and in the technology industry and community. I'm, I'm wondering why you think that is. I think that there's a sense in which uh, seasteading is, is like the Silicon Valley approach to government. My thinking is all about looking at, at governance as an industry and saying, oh, this industry has these characteristics like, like it's kind of a cartel and there's no startup sector. So of course people aren't satisfied with the product. And the idea of looking at something as an industry and then trying to figure out how to disrupt it, how to bring in startups that do things in new and better ways and challenge the old companies and uh, doing so in the case of seasteading with technology, where the idea that if we can find new technology to live on the ocean, we can solve political problems by creating a startup sector uh, on the seas for governance. These are all very Silicon Valley ideas. And, and I would say that uh, the type of people who support seasteading, it, it's really much, much better predicted by this sort of like tech, open source, wiki thinking, um, you know, entrepreneurship uh, more than any particular side of the political spectrum. What do you think of the uh, recent Jeff Bezos plans to uh, make a big space station and send it out? Do you think that's related to seasteading? 
Well, I, I think that the reasons are different in that um, going to space is a way of, of getting lots of resources, whereas we're already taking resources on the ocean and, and settling the ocean is, is more about uh, this political experimentation and, and living in a different way. But, you know, there's a deep commonality. And then in both cases, we're saying, let's move human civilization to the next frontier. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of space settlement. Uh, becoming a multi-planetary society. But I do think that it's a fair ways off, and I'm glad that people are working on it now. But I think that they should realize that the oceans are much, much easier than space, yet a significant challenge. And it's it's a frontier here on Earth that, uh, that we haven't tapped. And um, finally, I'm curious, when it comes to settling the oceans, what are your thoughts on, on working to clean the oceans and to... Uh, improve the sustainability of, of life in the oceans, which, which right now is at such dire risk? My, my hope is that when the oceans are our home, people take better care of their home than they do far and distant places. And right now the ocean is sort of the, you know, the, the vacant lot <laughs> that touches everyone. They just dump stuff in. And so seasteaders are going to care enormously about cleaning the ocean. But doing so is really hard. I think what people don't understand about things like the garbage patch is just how thin it is. You know, it's not like a pile that you could go in and scoop up. It's like this thin plastic slurry spread out over hundreds and thousands of square miles. And so it's it's going to take, you know, plastic eating bacteria or something something really creative to address. But I think we'll have a much better chance of addressing it if we're there. And, and you know, even before that, I think seasteading can have a huge impact on world uh, food supply, um, aquaculture, you know, look at the increase in how much meat we had going from just hunting it in the wild to ranching it. And we need to make that transition with fish, which is the healthiest protein. So we need to go from hunting fish out of the ocean to, to farming them at large, large scale. It's interesting. I haven't heard the ocean described as a vacant lot, but I guess that's one way to think about it. Padre, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I, I learned a ton about where this is at right now. Great. Thanks so much for having me. When we come back, we'll talk to Robert Vecino. He founded a company that builds underground bunkers to help people survive various catastrophes. We'll talk about those catastrophes and the philosophy behind bunker construction after the break. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Now we're joined by Robert Vecino, the head of Vivos, a company that builds high-end shelters to help people survive natural disasters and other potential catastrophes. Robert Vecino, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's my pleasure. So I think my first question is, what are these bunkers like? Well, they're as nice as we can possibly make them. You know, what they're not is World War II military steel gray with a cot. We outfit them and fit and finish them to have, you know, a very comfortable atmosphere so that you can ride it out psychologically, whatever the event may be that caused you to go to shelter and lock the door. 
you know, you have to survive both physically, but psychologically as well. And it doesn't cost that much more to, you know, have a nice color scheme or to pick the right materials or to furnish it and so on. And what's the layout? Like you get a kitchen, you get a living room. What, what kinds of amenities could I expect? Everything that you would have in your home um, and maybe more. We've had a <laughs> lot of people say, wow, this is, this is better than my house. Uh, most of those people live in, a, right. in an apartment in New York. But that's another story. Um, so everything is there where there's entertainment, we have theaters, well, in our bigger bunkers, um, you know, we have medical area, we have, uh, theaters, gym, you know, uh, growing areas for hydroponics and aquaponics, uh, large kitchens, power room, security center. Um, and another one that we're working on now, which I'm not going to give you too much specific is effectively an underground city. It's 3 million square feet, wow. nearly a mile square. And uh, that one will have, it actually has a lake, a 400-foot lake in it that will be illuminated from underneath. Um, so you feel like you're in some kind of Disneyland ride. And you can swim. You can, uh, there'll be rowboats. Um, there'll be fish. And so, you know, there's just so many things to do. It depends on the scale and size of the uh, specific shelter. And we've got them from 2,200 feet up to 3 million square feet. And so you're building all of this, this, uh, you know, lake lit from beneath uh, these nicely furnished uh, bunker apartments. Why? What's the possible scenarios that people might want to go underground for? Well, just turn on your morning news or evening news and look around. You know, the threats we face, are both man-made and from potential mother nature or the cosmos even, you know, are, um, are real evident. And so all we are is nothing more than life assurance. And there are plenty of people out there um, that are beating on our door to get in because they want a back door. They want a solution just in case. Uh, some of them are well-known names that uh, we all know and respect. Um, but it's not about the elite. We also have the lower middle class, um, probably even some, uh, I, I know of one member that only makes $12,000 a year, and he managed to obtain a space in Vivos. What would you say your clients sort of have in common? Um, I mean, I was going to say they have enough money to get these spaces. Obviously, that doesn't necessarily mean they're super well off. But um, what kind of person is getting a bunker, is securing a bunker? Um, they're effectively like your neighbor next door. They're just average people that uh, I would say have an open mind or a little more enlightened, a little more educated, uh, that are connecting the dots that realize that this stuff can happen and probably will. And so, um, you know, I'll give you an example. I have a guy who's 69 years old. He's done very well for himself and he has a, a family um, that he said he couldn't sleep at night, not having, he's provided them everything. He's got a big estate, but not having this solution to make sure that his children and his grandchildren will have an opportunity to live through an event like that and come out the other side. So he bought in, obtained 20, two bunkers actually for 24 people over in South Dakota. And um, I talked to him two months later. I said, hey, Mike, how you doing? How, how's, are you sleeping? He goes, like a baby. 
I'm curious. Um, do you see uh, a a lot of uh, taste for this, particularly amongst people who are in the technology industry, though? Because you know, we I kind of learned about this movement when reading about kind of preparations and 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 people who were had a survivalist streak that were coming from Silicon Valley. Well, they're certainly out there, um, but the truth is, we get them from all sectors because it takes a community of like-minded people to survive. You know, if you're in a shelter and you're a doctor, that's great. But what happens when the toilet breaks and you don't know how to fix it? So, you know, these shelters, we try to populate them with as many skill sets. But the single denominator is they all have a tolerant attitude towards each other. We decline and we screen out people that have some kind of prejudice. If they say, I would never go down there with children or if there was dogs or cats or um, certain colored people or certain religious people. And so we say, hey, no worries. Let us know how it works out for you on the surface. So what is the process exactly? You have people applying, and are they renting the bunkers? Are they owning the bunkers? Um, What's the structure of the setup? Everyone is different. It depends on the size of the complex um, and how we acquire it. So for example... The uh, In Indiana, we have a shelter that's owned by a, a private, single-purpose, mutual benefit, not-for-profit corporation, and there's eight, it accommodates 80 people. So that shelter has 80 owners, and each member is an owner, and um, they'll never be more, never be less. But in another location, such as South Dakota, uh, we're actually leasing those bunkers for 99 years with an opening prepayment of 35000 per bunker. So you get a whole bunker that is 2,200 square feet, concrete and steel, as part of a community of 575 bunkers that uh, spans over 18 square miles, three quarters of the size of New York City. Uh, so one common thing we do is every shelter is outfitted with enough food uh, for the entire population to be in that shelter for a minimum of one year. And then we complement that with uh, hydroponics and aquaponics. So we're constantly creating new food, growing food, and so on. It seems, uh, you sort of hinted at this as you've been talking, but it seems as though the kind of apocalypse prep market is uh, doing pretty well right now. Um, And I'm wondering where you see yourself standing apart from competitors or from other sort of prepper survivalist companies in the same uh, industry. Well, um, first of all, I don't consider our members to be preppers. Uh, preppers are the guys that um, have their can of beans and uh, some water purification and they have a gun and they go out in the, in the mountains or the desert with their buddies and they, you know, shoot at targets every weekend. And that's their religion, if you will. Um, ARPA members are just average people that, um, you know, have this concern. The one thing I haven't mentioned that is in my mind, Um, There is a distinction between those that are concerned and want this product and those that aren't. And that is, there are some that are out there that believe the government's going to be there for them. And if and when anything happens, there's a spot for them and they're going to be taken care of. And if there was a threat, the government would let us know. And, you know, because it's the right thing to do and we believe in our government. And, you know, uh, despite the fact that the government has deep underground bunkers for themselves, but not for you. 
not for me. Your name's not on the list. Um, and you, it makes you wonder why did every government from Russia to China to America spend billions and billions, maybe trillions of dollars on building deep, vast underground bunkers? I can't speak to the veracity of what the government is or, or isn't doing in this respect. But uh, last question. I'm curious, is there a common threat that people who are taking these measures to uh, prepare and survive whatever that threat may be on the surface of the earth that they're kind of shielding themselves from or that they're concerned about? You list a number on your website from bioterrorism to anarchy uh, to uh, you know, a comet striking or a tsunami or solar flares. Is there one that, that you think people are kind of most rallied behind or that you hear most regularly as, as something that people want to prepare for? Yeah, it's a good question. Everybody has a different concern, believe it or not. Some overlap, some are concerned about a ripple effect. If this happens, then that will happen. For example, if there's an economic collapse, it will lead to anarchy. It will lead to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so our people... I would say the biggest concern is the same one that I had that inspired me back in 1982 to do this. And that is something's coming our way. Something is coming our way. That's the message I got. And it will be an extinction level event. What does that mean? It means it's not here. It's coming from somewhere else, AKA some people might call it Nibiru. Some people might call it planet X. Uh, maybe it's an asteroid. For example, Apophis is a huge extinction level event heading our way. It's going to pass on April 15th, tax day, 2029. And it's going to be so close that it's actually going to skim our atmosphere. Do a search, a Apophis, it's a Greek word, and you will find it. And then it comes around again in 2036. And it's suspected that or reported that it's going to be even closer. You know, I, I got I have one more tiny question. Can you at least tell us what continent the city that you're building underground is is under or in? It's in America. It's well, in America? Well, there's, there's three of them. Yeah, there's also mm. one we're working on that's uh, uh, very deep in South Korea, the tip of South Korea. Is this the one with the lake? No, that one's in America. And then we have another one in Germany that was, uh, it's a quarter million square feet, that was built by the Soviets during the Cold War. So, which continent? We're around the world. Robert Vecino, thank you so much for joining us. I learned a ton about your industry, which I knew so little about. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. I hope I didn't shock you too much. Bye-bye. <laughs> one final quick break, and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. All right, Max, uh, what do you want to recommend to our listeners this week? Um, I actually want to recommend an entire issue of a magazine, uh, Logic Magazine, which is a small print magazine about technology that also has a web presence but is very print forward, um, has a new issue about China out. And uh, it, the whole thing is really good. It's beautifully printed. I recommend subscribing. You can also read uh, some of the articles at logicmag.io. Um, but I want to recommend two articles in particular, both of which are online so that readers can grab them and read them without having to buy the whole thing. One is called The Messy Truth About Social 
Credit by a writer named Shiseida Ahmed. Um, it's about uh, social credit systems in China, which uh, you know people may have heard of as this big, terrifying you know surveillance mm-hmm. network that is blacklisting people from participating in society. And while that's not entirely inaccurate, it's also not really accurate either. And this is a good rundown of what actually exists in terms of social credit systems in China, and also compares it to the social credit systems that we have in the U.S. and that we just don't think of as social credit systems. Um, and then the other one I want to recommend is an article called Bullet Time by Christina Zhu, which is just a really amazing piece about uh, how social media and bulletin board systems and message boards work uh, in China. Um, and uh, just, you know, it's just a fun piece. So I read the social credit piece, which I just found tremendously useful because this is a term that I've read some news articles about, but just didn't have like an in-depth understanding of. And I thought that the piece just did a fantastic job of of kind of giving me the the kind of backbone that I needed to really understand what's, what's happening with this. Um, but I have not read Christina's piece yet, which I hear is fantastic. Yeah, they're both great. And if you're at all, you know, if you're like me, and I, I imagine if you're listening to this podcast, you're enough like me to be sort of fascinated by China as the site of this enormous internet that doesn't overlap very much with the sort of internet of America and Europe. Um, this is this whole issue is just a great sort of look at the history of the Chinese internet, the features of it, how it works, um, and the way people use it. Yeah, there's this another piece in it I enjoyed, a very short uh, piece by uh, whose name is escaping, but a, a science fiction author from China who visited Burning Man ah. and gave kind of his perspective on uh, a cadre of entrepreneurs as well as just enthusiasts that went from China on what it was like to visit this uh, temporary colony in the desert party thing. And that was just a, a fantastic piece. It was like really empathetic to burners um, in a way that I think – Americans often are not, and uh, but also kind of critical in, in really apt ways. So yeah, the whole issue is just wonderful and, and recommend uh, checking this one out as well. So great tab. Um, for me this week, uh, I'm going to be the person in the band that wears their own t-shirt, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I am recommending a, uh, a cover story. We use the word cover story even though we're an online magazine, but our a big feature that we have this week uh, entitled Donald Trump's Wikipedia Entry is a War Zone. It's by my colleague Aaron Mack. And it is about the, uh, you know, minute by minute, second by second battle to edit the president's Wikipedia page and how he's defined and how his policies are defined. And, you know, Wikipedia is, I think it's like the fifth most popular website on the Internet. I I interviewed Catherine Maher uh, for this show a few months ago, and and she gave us all these details on on its size. It's just tremendous. I mean, it's really the – when you ask Google a question, there's a large chance you're really looking for something from Wikipedia, right? Um, And so this piece goes in-depth into this giant fight that's happening probably as we speak. Uh, on on his Wikipedia page. And I just think it's incredibly important because when people look something up about Trump, there's a good chance they might read the news, but they might actually trust Wikipedia more or go to his Wikipedia page first. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of amazing. You know, I feel like 10 years ago, Wikipedia was regarded as this sort of scourge and there was all these sort of moral panicky articles about uh students using Wikipedia to source papers and stuff. And these days, it it feels like one of the real pillars of like the optimistic internet. It feels like one of the last things you can kind of look at. It's not perfect by any means, but, you know, we're talking about something that people really care about that for the most part produces pretty accurate information um, and is a pretty unbelievable accomplishment for, for a nonprofit um, that's, you know, mostly staffed by volunteers. 
it's it's just a tremendously powerful website. Uh, and there is a problem with editors uh, coming from kind of the same background, generally white, generally male. Uh, and Wikipedia has been working for a really long time to diversify its editing base. Uh, but it is uh, largely correct. I mean, there's been t- many, many studies that show that Wikipedia is as correct as the Encyclopedia Britannica is. <laughs> and it definitely serves as a second screen for folks. You know, I think that when somebody sees the name of uh judge, for instance, that they're not familiar with, they'll go look it up on Wikipedia to get that quick context that they need. And so uh, it's really important for helping, I think, anybody who uses the internet kind of contextualize the information that that comes up for them. And it turns out that the folks who are editing Donald Trump's page are secretive in many ways, right? And so one of the things that's really interesting about Wikipedia, of course, is that you can be an anonymous editor. You don't have to, you know, show your name or, or say where you're coming from. They allow you to edit through Tor, the anonymity uh, web browser. And, um, yeah, this is a deep dive into uh, the kind of fight to cultivate a neutral, dispassionate tone, um, you know, amongst the editors. And uh, I think it's we don't write about Wikipedia enough. We don't look into it enough. And this is uh, a piece I really recommend for folks. Uh, So, yeah, check this piece out. Contribute to Wikipedia if it's something you're interested in. I something I feel safe saying about just because it's it's a nonprofit and it's it's something that we all use. And uh, the more diverse editors, the more editors, the stronger it is. And uh, and yeah, uh, hopefully more stories like this will continue to be written because I love reading about Wikipedia. And yeah, (laughs) it is a kind of a success story, right? (laughs) Um, And that does it for our show this week. You can email us at if then at slate.com. Send us your questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hello. You can follow me and Max on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Max is at Max underscore R-E-A-D. And thanks again to our guests, Patrick Freeman and Robert Pacino. Uh, and thanks to everyone who's left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Uh, we really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com slash future news. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Thanks also to Gonady Joe Johnson, who engineered for us today at YR Media in Oakland. And we will see y'all next week. And Max, thank you so much for joining us. It was great doing a second episode with you. Thanks so much for having me back. I'll see you in the bunker. (laughs) Yeah, for sure.